0: It's only forty-five minutes long, too. No, I'm kidding. All right, so, so I'll give you your five bucks later. Oh, but anyways, so we're well, we'll finding ourselves in the Old Testament today again. We were in it last week, and we're in the the Book of Judges, examining, excuse me, events that are unfolding in the book of Judges for the Israelites. And in Judges 6 1, I'll let you get a, I'll give you a chance to get to Judges if you want to follow along. I know some people like to. So Judges chapter six. Three, two, one. Okay. So Judges six one says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the the power of the Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. So God gave Israel into the hands of their enemies. Why? Because they didn't do what was righteous. They were not following the directions of the Lord. And it was so bad... (coughs) Excuse me, my throat's been bothering me, so if I have to stop and take a sip, you'll understand why. But so, it was so bad... Uh, that they find themselves hiding out in the most secure places they can find, like caves. They are frightened, and evidently they're starving because the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the word says the sons of the east, would come and they kept destroying all the crops that the Israelites planted. The Bible tells us that when those people invaded, they invaded the land. There were so many of them, you couldn't even count them. And verse 4 says, they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. I should point out here that there was really a sincere hatred by the Midianites for the Israelites. It was in the book of Numbers that God had sent the Israelites to battle against them and the Israelites beat them up pretty bad. They destroyed them. They took all their flocks. They took all their goods. They took all their herds. So there was this their hatred. And the Midianites had now felt they had the upper hand. So what were they doing? They were tormenting the Israelites. And God was allowing it. And God was using it as a way to wake Israel up to their disobedience. Verse 6, it says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they finally, they cried out to the Lord for help. As with many, they were so beat up, they were at the end of their rope, they knew they can't, couldn't change their situation by their own strength, by their own ability, and where do they go? They start looking up again. Start waking up. And they cry out to the Lord, and He hears them. And what does he do in reaction to their crying out to him? What, how does he answer them? In verse 8 he says, it says, he sends them a prophet who said this to them. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your impressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship gods of the Amorites whose land you live in, but you have not listened to me. He tells them, you haven't listened to me. He reminds them, he was the one who delivered them from slavery. Reminds them of the instruction, don't worship other gods. I told you don't do that. This was if you haven't realized it yet, or if the light bulb hasn't gone on, people, this is why you're in trouble. This is why you're suffering at the hands of your enemies, because of your disobedience. They had been very unfaithful. But we know time and time again, in our unfaithfulness, God shows how faithful, how faithful he actually is. And on the heels of sending his prophet to them to just reaffirm the truth, He raises up another individual to help them, another judge called by God, and his name was Gideon. In 6.11, it says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress, trying to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, said Gideon. But if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancient ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up and out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So here's Gideon giving his response to the angel of the Lord. He gives his response to the statement, the Lord is with you. And his response is really something like this. Yeah, right. If he was with us, why would I be going through this? If he was with us, where are all those miracles that I've heard about? Where are all those miracles that have been passed down where he's protected the people, where he parted the Red Sea, where he sent the plagues? Where are all these miracles? He's not buying in yet. Because he has not seen God's hand in it and Gideon's feeling abandoned. But the Lord says to him, in verse 14, he says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And politely, he says, in verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered him, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So it's evident here. So not only is is he having a hard time with the Lord is with you with all the suffering going on. He's also having a hard time viewing himself as a mighty warrior. By his own description, he's saying, I'm the least in my family. Maybe the youngest, but certainly that statement carries with it an idea of insignificance. His clan, the Abiezrites, is how you pronounce it, is described as the weakest of them all. This is so God. This is so God to take somebody who's in the background, to take them from the weakest clan and to rise them up. To do his bidding through his strength. See, he's being sent on a mission by the Lord, but he's struggling with it because he's thinking to himself, how could I possibly do this? And the answer is pretty simple, although it's complex at the same time, because the answer is this, I will be with you, saith the Lord. The Lord's promising, I'm going to be with you. What are you worried about? And for Gideon, it starts to sink in. And he begins to, to accept what he is being said. And he knows that there's nothing too great for God. He knows of all the previous miracles. He knows of the deliverance of Israel. He knows that the power of God cannot be stopped or hindered. But he has to make sure of something. He has to make sure of this one thing. is to make sure of who he's talking to. Because he knows it's only possible if he's truly talking to the Lord, if he's truly talking to God. I'm going to take a quick sidetrack here because this is important, because this can cause some confusion because of title. Because what? Who is the visiting? Getting? What does the Bible says? It says it's the angel of the Lord. All right, it doesn't say an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is not a created being. You see the other, the the angel of the Lord, referred to in other places in the Old Testament when it comes to the burning bush in Moses, when it comes to speaking to Samuel. Talks about the angel of the Lord. And there's two lines of thought here. One is, It's either God coming in a form that could be seen by humans and people wouldn't die. Or the more prevalent argument is that Jesus Christ is coming, our Lord, pre-incarnate before he came in human form. Now, the interesting thing here is that the angel of the Lord stops to make appearances once Christ is born. But this is important because who is Gideon talking to? He's talking to God. He's talking to the Lord. And when you go back and forth in some of the conversations, you'll say, you'll see it'll say, the angel of the Lord. And then it'll go back and forth to saying, well, God said, or the Lord said back and forth with Gideon. And it can get confusing. So it's important to know that, know that. But either way, it doesn't matter because Gideon really needs to know who he's speaking to. He wants to make sure it's God he's hearing from and that he's not being misled to go in the direction that he shouldn't. So he asks for a sign from the Lord, and he goes to prepare a sacrifice, and the Lord agrees to wait for him. So he prepares this offering of goat bread broth and comes back. He's told to place it on a rock, and he does, and the angel of the Lord touched the meat with his staff and fire from the rock, consumed the sacrifice. And then it says, then the Lord disappeared. Sacrifice accepted. It was God he was talking to. He was ready to do what the Lord asked him to do. And the Lord tells him to begin where? He tells him to begin in his own town. Tells him to go into his own town and to cut the Asherah pole down, to destroy the altar of Baal, to erect an altar to the one true living God, to make a sacrifice on it. Hey, while you're making a sacrifice, that pole that you chopped down for Asherah, why don't you use that as the wood to burn? I love that part. And Gideon did this. He took 10 of his servants and he did this, but he was still kind of fearful of the family, his family. He was still kind of fearful of the townspeople. So he did it at night rather than in the daytime. And when they found out it was him, at first they were not happy. And they went to his father, Joash, and they demanded, give us Gideon so we can kill him. But it already had started. There was already awakening going on. And Joash was starting to wake up. Joash was fighting for Gideon now. And he says to them and he confronts the people confronting him with a question. And he says, are you going to plead Baal's case? And it sounds like a simple question, but really what he's saying to them, you're Israelites, right? Right. So you're going to take the side and argue for a false god? You're an Israelite? What's up with that? And it must have sunk in because they start agreeing with him. And the next thing he says to them, if Baal's a real god, can't he defend himself? They agree. They leave Gideon alone. And they name him Jerubbaal, which means let Baal contend with them. But they're waking up here because they're realizing they are the chosen people. They're supposed to be worshiping the one true God, and they're not. And then it even gets better because at this point the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east come again and they camp in the valley of Jezreel and they're ready to come and do what? Wipe out the crops. They're ready to come and what? Kill the herds. Kill the donkeys. Kill everything. Any kind of sustenance that Israel could have. Any kind of food. They're ready to come and wipe it out once again to torment them. But something's changed because God's raised up a judge. God's changing the hearts of the people. God's waking them up. And when this is happening and the people are filling in and camping out in the valley of Jezreel, it says that the spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he grabs the trumpet, which is probably the ram's horn, and he blows it and he's summoning his people and his clan comes. And then he sends messengers to the others and they also come and they're ready to do battle. Then a little doubt starts to seep in. Has a little fear going on here. And with the armies facing each other and about to do battle, he starts doubting what the Lord said he was going to do. And he decides, I'm going to test him again. And then Gideon said to him in verse 36, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. Look, I will place this wool fleece on the threshing floor. If it's really the promise, if it's true what you said you're going to do, please make the ground dry around it overnight and make the fleece wet with dew. So he wakes up the next morning and he comes in and he grabs the fleece to check it and he wrings it out and it's soaking wet and it says he fills a bowl full of water. So he knows it's the truth. Except he's going to double check. (laughs) And he goes, wasn't satisfied. He's going to check him a third time. And the first thing he says, though, I'm sure we'd all say this, Gideon said to God, Don't be angry with me. (laughs) Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, I'm going to change it up, God. I want the fleece dry and the ground wet. And God did so that night. And in the morning, he's convinced now. He knows. God has passed his test. God is so gracious God just could have went, oh, stop testing me. But he didn't. So Gideon is convinced and he sets out with his army. But Gideon's faith, faith is about to be refined. God is about to remove any doubt of whether or not it's going to be victory through the power of God versus victory through human effort. And he begins to whittle down the numbers of Gideon's army. See, quite a few people responded to Gideon's call. And he had an army of 22,000. And the Lord said to Gideon, "Uh, you have too many warriors with you. And if I let you do battle with too many warriors and you win, you might think it's because of the numbers. You might think that it was their own doing, it was their own strength. And he says, so announce to the army in verse three, seven, 3, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men Oh no. Excuse me. There were 32,000. 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. So twenty two thousand left, ten thousand remain. That's still quite a few people. And the Lord thinks it's too many. So the Lord speaks to Gideon again, he says, There are two still too many men. And he instructs him to bring them to the water. And what he says is they're gonna weed themselves out by the way they drink. Those that take a need a drink, they can go home. Those that scoop water in their hands, they lap it like a dog, they're gonna stay. So those who cupped the water in their hands was 300. So now it went from 10,000 to 300. God was making a powerful point here because it wasn't about the numbers. It wasn't about the tactical advantage. It was about the Lord being with them. It was about the power, not their power, but his power, not their strength, but his strength. And frankly, if the Lord had just sent Gideon Gideon himself, they still would have won. Because it was about the Lord being with them, not about them. Gideon's faith was being tested, he was being refined. And as the numbers come down to 300, here we go, fear starts to creep in again. But God understands and he encourages him. And the Lord says, listen, if you're afraid, sneak down with someone to the camp and listen to what the men are talking about. And as they arrive there, in verse 13, one is talking to the other. One of the Midianites is talking to the other. and He says, I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And his friend gave him the interpretation for the dream. He says, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Gideon heard this. His fear went away. Not only his Pharaoh went away, this is very crucial because his immediate response when he hears this is to bow down and worship God. To bow down and worship the Lord. He tested him with the sacrifice, he passed. He tested him with the fleece, he passed. He retested him again, he passed. And then every time he retested him, it seemed like he was convinced and he was going to do the next thing and the next thing. But listen, Gideon was a human being. And fear crept in. And when his number was 22,000, he probably felt a little more confident than 300. Speaks a lot about trusting and relying on the Lord. Gideon's faith was being refined. And when he started with weak faith, his faith was now strong. And he was strong. And what happens is as he bows down and worships, the Lord says, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. And each man went when they were equipped with a trumpet and an empty jar carrying a torch. And they divided up into three groups and they went to the edge of the camp. And following Gideon's lead, they blew the trumpets, broke the jars, and shouted a sword for the Lord in Gideon. And when the 300 trumpets had sounded, the Midianites began to running and crying out as they fled. And the Lord caused them to turn on one another with their own swords. And guess how many died that one day? It was 120,000. So listen, that also gives you a little bit more oomph when you talk about Gideon, 300 men. There was 120,000 that just died from them attacking each other. And the remaining army, which was about 15,000, fled. And they were pursued by the Israelites from Natali, Asher, Manasseh, and Ephraim. Gideon tracked the kings down, the Midianite kings, and he eventually killed them. The Israelite was free. The Israelites were free from their oppressors. And they were grateful. And this is one thing that Gideon did very right. They were grateful and they wanted to thank him. And they offered for Gideon and his sons to rule over them. And he went, Not me. And he pointed to the Lord. So let the Lord rule over you. In the face of temptation, he did the right thing. But Gideon soon makes mistakes. He asks for an earring from each of the enemy's soldiers. as kind of a tribute. And they give him a gold earring from each of the enemy's soldiers. And it ends up to be 43 pounds of gold. And what he does is he makes this epod which is an image. Now, it's an image tied to priestly garments sometimes. They're not exactly sure what we're talking about here. But it was an image, and he took that image, and he put it in his own hometown. And what happened is that people in his own hometown started worshiping the image. And it said, But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. This one mistake that after everything he's done well, this one mistake where he backs up and he falls down, and he makes a mistake and he causes false worship to happen now, is going to ruin his family. For Gideon himself, he lives a long time and he enjoyed peace during his whole lifetime. But the consequences that were for creating Yepad The consequences for his family were going to be hefty. And Gideon had this son of a concubine and he had these sons of his wife. And he says he had 70 sons and their half brother decided that he wanted power. Half brother wanted to rule and he was making deals all over the place. And he, you know what? He had all 70 murdered. So all 70 were killed. And then when Gideon finally dies, it says this, as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of who? Baal. And may Baal bereath their God. They forgot the Lord their God who rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them, nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Gideon, despite all the good things he had done for Israel. Simply said, good consequences for good choices, bad consequences for bad choices. There are so many things as the followers of Christ that we can relate to in this story of Gideon. You know, yes, he was judge over Israel, chosen by God, but I've already mentioned this. He was a human being, he dealt with emotion. He dealt with downheartedness. He dealt with misery. He dealt with fear. He struggled with doubt. He struggled with the fact that in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of everything they were going through, he didn't see the hand of God. So what did he assume? They've been abandoned. He didn't see the miracles, so God must not be there. Gideon makes the mistake of walking by what he sees and not walking by faith. And because of that, his faith is weak. It is wise for us to remember as believers in Jesus Christ that the Lord said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's always there. And in those moments when we're dealing with emotion, when we're feeling that God's distant, when we're feeling overwhelmed, we need to know that Jesus Christ has not moved. Usually it's us just doing the backing up. And maybe we're backing up because we haven't seen his hand move and we're doubting what he wants us to do. We're doubting the word of God. Maybe he's backing up because we're fearful of what he's asking us to do. Maybe we're backing up because we know that there's an idol in our life. And listen, it may not be an image of Baal, but it's an idol that takes precedent over God and we're not ready to give it up. But he never leaves us or forsakes us. And he's right there, wanting us to return to him. <laughs> For the Israelites, they were feeling abandoned, but, but they were the ones who had strayed. And God used the Midianites to wake them up. It's interesting here because it took seven years. Seven years of suffering. Seven years of hiding out in a cave. Seven years of all your animals continually being destroyed. Of all your crops being wiped out. or starving to death. Are you kidding me? It took seven years of that for them to cry out? You know, I can say that so easily, but when you think about it, in our lives, sometimes when we're struggling with those idols, when we're struggling with sin and we turn around, we've been struggling for three years and we're not living that life that God has for us. We're not living the abundant life that promised us in the Bible. We're not living by the power of God and we're not being used the way God wants us to wants to use us. In the years pass. So when I say seven years, it sounds so long. To a little kid, it probably sounds like an eternity. But to the older folk, it probably sounds like... If you've had kids that have grown up, remember when they were five? That scares me, okay? <laughs> okay. Oh. So it took seven years for them. We need to remember that God certainly can use things in our lives to get our attention. And some of the things, some of the bad things that are happening or happen to us are are being allowed to wake us up to the fact that we need to get back on the path of righteousness. Or to the fact that God wants to use us. Let's go. Let's go. It's not because the Lord's mean. Just the opposite. It's because he's caring. Sometimes what happens in our lives are not attacks on us because we're believers. Rather, they're attention getters because we're believers. Gideon knew that God was very capable of doing what he said. But in the beginning, he takes a moment and he does something really important. He does something really right. He makes sure that it's God who's speaking to him. I see it too often. Oh, God, I think God wants me to do this. And we go. And then God's still standing over here and we're over there going. It's too easy to make a mistake here. The Bible says there's many voices in the world. The Bible says to test the spirits. It's wise to make sure who we are listening to. It's wise to make sure that we're not being led by our our own wants and our own desires. That the enemy isn't using our pride to manipulate us down a certain road. Listen, one of the things that sticks out, if it's all about self and benefiting you and not glorifying God, eh, it's not of God. Also, if you're not sure if it's God, don't go anywhere. Don't move. Don't change direction. Don't go through the red door. Stay there. God will let you know. Secondly, if it's God, it's definitely going to line up with the Word of God. There is no doubt. (laughs) Well, there's a struggle with this today, though. And I've got this quote for you, this short quote I want to read. I wonder if you're going to guess who it is. And it says this. I don't reject the idea of God. I just reject the God of the Bible. Charles Darwin. Doesn't that speak volumes, though? Because that's where we have an issue. That's where we have an issue because if you are hearing from the one true living God, it's always going to line up with the Bible. The God of the Bible is the real God. When God accepted Gideon's sacrifice, he knew it was him. He was willing to go. But listen, this is another thing that we can take out of this. When God, when we finally realize this, it's God, and I've tested him enough, and you know what? God, I'm in. What do you want me to do? Start with your own household. You don't have to go far. Guess what? Don't go to Haiti. What about your living room? And when you're done with your living room, Forget New Orleans, how about Valley? Not sure we think that way all the time. But listen, God loves us, he cares for us, he wants us on a path of righteousness. And a lot of times, the adjustments that we need to go through, the struggles that we have, are in our own households, are in our own families, are in our own attitudes when it comes to some things of the world and how we've let them seep in. And though God doesn't want us to do that. God wants us to live that abundant life. He wants to be spiritually equipped to do what he wants us to do. And to do that, we always we say, oh, Lord, I want to be the empty vessel. Well, yeah, empty the vessel. God can help you. Jesus can help you. And the vessel is a lot of times half full with garbage. So he has him start his family. We need to remember that. We need to start right in our own backyard sometimes. And this is also important too. it's all important, but this is important to me. This, this one spoke to me because he crushes and destroys the altar of Baal. He doesn't set up, all right, God, Baal's got his altar. I'm going to set the one true living God up over here. Everyone come here and leave that one alone. No! He goes right at it. He crushes it. He destroys it. He uses the pole wood to make a fire, to sacrifice to the one true living God. He's making a point here. It's a false God. It's an idol that needs to go. What happens when we take an idol and we take the one true living God and we set up two altars? There's that temptation to return. Gonna walk by that one to go to God all the time. Gonna walk and you're like, oh, maybe God won't mind if I just stop once. It's like stopping, and I don't know why this just came to my mind. It's like stopping at the liquor store when you're alcoholic and you gotta go buy it all the time. Listen, if you can just crush it, if you can destroy it, if you can get rid of that temptation, wouldn't you do that? You want to say to that God, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ, get out of my life. Amen. Peter, you had something to say there? He can. Amen. He can. He can give you the strength. He can take those things off you. You can be healed. True healing only comes through Jesus Christ. Amen. amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to start uh, handing out the, off- uh, the offering. No, we already took that, and we don't want to hand it back out, Dan. Do we? <laughs> no. So we'll we'll do communion instead. <laughs> All right. So he starts with his family. He destroys the altar, puts God's in its place. When God wants to use us to refine our faith, it often starts in our household. So it starts in our lives. It's about being being obedient to God's word. Sometimes when we need to witness, when we need to pray, when we need to spread God's word, when we need to rebuke wicked and evil practices, it's often right around us. Not necessarily starting too far away. Gideon used a fleece twice to confirm that what God was telling him was true. And God graciously answered him and encouraged him. I can't tell you, I can't remember another story in the Bible where you see God being so gracious, especially in the Old Testament. You know, he's so gracious to him. Every time he fears, he's encouraging him. Every time he needs to test him, he gives him an answer. His grace just abounds here. But I want to say this to you. If you are If God is giving you direction and you're not sure it's God, if you're hearing something, you're getting something, you think you should do something, but you're not sure, it's okay to pray for confirmation. It's okay to say, Lord, because the Lord knows our hearts. He knows what's motivating us to do it. If we're trying to bob and weave and duck and not do it, He knows that. If we're sincerely seeking Him and we only want to know because we want to go in that direction and we're not sure, He will confirm that to you he will let you know that it is him. There is no doubt in my mind, if I could ask for testimony after testimony of people that that has happened to. So feel free to approach the Lord and say, Lord, I want to serve you. I just want to make sure it's you. Because we have to be careful here. We have to make sure that it's God that is giving us things to do. God that is sending us in certain directions. Listen, even when Gideon... Had 32,000 that went to 10,000 that went to 300. When he started, he was all fired up after the test and stuff. And then at the end, he got a little, a little bit fearful. There are going to be times in our lives when we're called to go into a direction and we have fear. We have fear. If Deb and Dave were here, they would tell you they were fearful. And some days you're still Fearful. But at the same time, they're trusting and relying on God, relying on the Lord. It doesn't matter what we face. What does matter is if the Lord is with us. The God made it clear, God made it clear to Gideon that the Lord was with him. And he proved to him that the Lord was with him. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what we see. What matters is that we walk by faith, knowing that the victory belongs to Jesus Christ, and that he has never left us or forsaken us, and that he is with us. When you leave this room today, I want you to be encouraged with this. God is not distant. He's right here. God is not cruel. He's caring, and He cares about us. I want you to remember that you're never alone. And if you're starting to feel alone, that's the time to open up the word of God. That's the time to press back in in prayer. That's the time to call a brother and sister in Christ and said, hey, let's get together and pray. That's the time to take a knee with your wife by your bedside and cry out to God. That's the time to gather your kids with the family and dedicate your life to the Lord. For me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Jesus not only hears, but he answers our prayers. Before we have communion, I just want to leave you with this last verse in Romans 8.31. And this sums it up for us in our walk. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us, who can be against us? All right, I got to say this one loud because I get excited. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Praise the Lord. Listen, what a great time. And then God all worked it out. I mean, Sean was supposed to be here today, sick as a dog. Keep him in prayer, please. But from Providence Rescue. But God has worked it out. Because when we come to the end of this sermon, I am just so grateful that God is gracious to me. I am so grateful that he confirms things and he encouraged me despite my fear. I'm so grateful that he uses me in ways that I just were beyond my even comprehension to begin with so grateful that we can walk by His power and we don't have to rely on our own because I'm not going to do so well with that. Amen. I remember everything as we take the bread, as we take you know the symbol of His body, as we look at that of everything He did on the cross for us, how He was beat up, how He was mocked, how He was spit on, how He came to pay the penalty, the price of sin for the world for us. I was just so grateful for that. Well, I'm going to ask you to take a moment and just to think about everything that Christ did on the cross for you, for us, and to partake of the emblem of bread. Bible says, and I can't remember the verse, I think it's in Hebrews, maybe not. It says, without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. Listen, Christ came to earth and on that cross he shed his blood for us. He shed his blood for us. And when he held the cup with the wine, he wanted us to remember that. He also wanted us to remember that he's coming back. You want an example of love? what Christ did on the cross for us. I don't know if you can top that one. So please, as you take the emblem of his blood, remember that the blood that was shed for us, remember that he's coming back. Remember how much he loves you, loves me. Amen. Please partake of the juice. Lord, I just as the body of Christ, Lord, we just come to you, Lord, and we just praise your name, Jesus, for everything that you've done in our lives. Lord, we remember and we just thank you for everything you've done on the cross for us, Lord, everything that you put up with, Lord, that we have a high priest who understands all that we go through, because you've been there. Lord, we thank you that you never leave us or forsake us, Thank you that we can walk by your strength and your power. We thank you for, that, for your encouragement, Lord. Lord, I pray for everyone here that we would clearly hear your voice, Lord. And that we would be obedient to what you tell us to do. Lord, we just thank you that you love us. I can't say that enough. We love you and we just praise your name, Jesus. And we pray this in the name of... Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and we all said, Amen. Amen. Listen, service is over. Go with the grace of God today.